The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father, we ask that this time of catechesis would be uh, useful to you in every way that you desire to teach us and to uh, guide us. We ask that you would be uh, present here in the teaching and work in us, uh, that we may know all things uh, necessary to salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, so we're back up. The Catechism, page 47 is where we are. Um, and having gone through uh, the, uh, the, the section on the Son, um, we turn to these kinds of last clauses in the Apostles' Creed, right? It's, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, and life everlasting, right? Um, and the, they're sort of, um, unlike in the Nicene Creed about the Holy Spirit, they're sort of like, uh, just sort of tacked on in a sense. Um, I would say that they're not so tacked on as you might think, and one of the things that, uh, that, that will become apparent as we go through all this is just how not tacked on they are. Uh, these are very intentional uh, phrases. I want you to remember that the Apostles' Creed initially was a baptismal creed in the church. Um, it was often called in the, ancient, in the ancient church the rule of faith, the regula fide in Latin, um, which, which is really an, an interesting way to put it because think about it. Ever use a, a ruler? Why do you use a ruler? Yeah, it's a measurement, right? You use it to measure things. And, and so this is a, this, the, the creeds, uh, especially the Apostles' Creed, was, was a, uh, a measure of faith. It was to say, you measure uh, your faith against that of the church. Now, I think it's actually bigger than that, which is that it's not like I have a faith and so I, I compare it to the church's faith. Right? No, it's not like that at all. It's, it's that the, the rule of faith establishes what Christians believe. Um, and I think that's really the key here. Um, another way to put this is that um, uh, is something like a plumb line. Do you know what a plumb line is? Did your old man have a plumb bob? Okay, well, if he, if he laid brick, he had a plumb bob, right? At all. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason that you have one is so that you know which way is what down, right? But if you know what way is down, then what do you know? Which way is up? Yeah. So, so this is an important kind of idea is that uh, it's, a, it's a plumb line. It keeps things in order. It keeps uh, the, the church in order. Um, and we've, we've been over this before in this class. Uh, the purpose of a creed is to declare and safeguard uh, God's truth as God has revealed it in the Holy Scripture. Um, so the creeds do this, and the Apostles' Creed is not alone in that. Um, and so in establishing the doctrines of the Holy Spirit, as well as the doctrines of Christ and of God the Father, uh, it, it lays all this out. Um, and so as we finish up the Apostles' Creed, which we'll be doing over the coming weeks, uh, this is just important to keep in mind that this is all part of that. Um, one more thing to keep in mind is that uh, very often, we know this from the original sources, that uh, people were baptized as they were reciting the creed. So it was something like this. Do you believe in God the Father? It's, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I baptize you in the name of the Father. Do you, and then someone else would say, do you believe in God the Son? I believe in God the Son. <laughs> and then, dunk! <laughs> like, and it wasn't just like uh, kind of a nice Episcopalian dunking or sprinkling. It was like, hold you under the water until you squirm. <laughs> right? Because the idea is you're dying to the old life of sin and being raised to the new life. And, and you're being baptized into the life of the Trinity. That's the reality as well. So as you're being baptized in the life of the Trinity, you're professing faith in the Trinity. Um, one of the things I want to add to this is that the, 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 this kind of idea that, the, that I believe in the Holy Spirit, okay, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is completely disconnected, is just not true. Um, for the ancient church, all the doctrines that follow, I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, they are all tied to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So this is really key, um, and we'll, we'll get into that. Um, you know, what does it mean to be part of a communion of saints? Or, or even in another way, which is another interpretation of this phrase, a communion of the holy. What does that mean? How's that forged? Um, that all comes from a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, from the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's get moving. Who is the Holy Spirit? God the Holy Spirit is the third person in the one being of the Holy Trinity, 
co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. Okay, so we're going to break this down a little bit. Uh, the third person, now does third mean less than the previous two? Not at all. Um, it simply is third, like my third child, whom I love just as much as the first two, right? Um, that's kind of the way. You just think, this is the third one we speak of. Okay, that's it. It doesn't mean less than. It doesn't mean a third in place. In the one being of the Holy Trinity. So the Holy, the Trinity is one. That's something to keep in mind. God is one. I mean, this is, uh, this is, this is actually in the gospel reading today and in the, in the, in the Old Testament reading as well. Um, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? Um, and, and this is the great Christian mystery is how can God be one and yet three? Well, we have to remember that that uh, that the divine persons um, are uh, are are one before they're anything. Okay, now even if there's a before, but there's no before, right? <laughs> they are one. The divine persons are one. Um, now, but they're not confused. So when we speak of the Holy Spirit, we speak of of the person who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. Meaning what? not less than, not greater than, and also uh, always has been just like the Son, just like the Father, um, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son, and equally worthy of our honor and worship. Now, this was scandalous to some people in the ancient church. It was this idea of, like, can we really worship the Holy Spirit? Like, what? Um, and it was very scandalous, actually, for a number of people. Uh, in, the, in the late 4th century, you had this group of uh, Macedonian Christians called the Nematomachians, which in, in Greek means spirit fighters, <laughs> which sounds really wild. But they fought against this doctrine of the Holy Spirit to the extent that they were quite literally thrown out of the Council of Constantinople in 381. Um, and this is where you get the last clause of the Nicene Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, right, and giver of life. Um, and in fact, they were, they were, yeah, they were thrown out of the council and, and you know, never came back. Um, but this is to say that, uh, that the Holy Spirit is God. Okay. Um, this is, this is, you know, kind of a radical departure for a lot of people, um, who, who are used to saying, yes, we believe in the Trinity, but worship the Holy Spirit? I don't know. That sounds a little weird. <laughs> uh, no, the church has always worshiped the Holy Spirit. Um, and the reason for that is that they understand that the Holy Spirit is God. It's very simple. Um, okay. You ready to move on? Let's talk about the New Testament. What principal names does the New Testament give to the Holy Spirit? Jesus names the Holy Spirit paraclete, the one alongside, which signifies comforter, guide, counselor, advocate, and helper. Other descriptions for the Holy Spirit are Spirit of God, Spirit of your Father, Spirit of Christ, and Spirit of Truth. And all of those are, all of those scripture references are at the very tail end of that. But this, this word paraclete, uh, literally means like the, the one who comes alongside. Um, how could we put this? It would be something like an advocate, right? Um, Jesus uses this term. If, uh, um, and, and so does Paul, right? Um, Paul uses this term not only for the Holy Spirit, but for Jesus himself. Like, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Um, and it's something like this. In the ancient world, um, court cases were a bit different. Um, you didn't hire a lawyer, you hired an orator. Why? Because in your defense, if you'd committed some sort of crime or not committed the crime, what would happen? case would be heard, and your orator would speak in your defense and would speak to your virtues and would speak to how, you know, <laughs> hey, hey, this guy, you can't, you can't put, you can't kill him. He's wonderful. <laughs> Everybody agrees that he's amazing, right? And, and this would be something like that. Um, uh, this would be the advocate, the paraclete, the one who, who walks alongside. Um, and we still have this idea, but it's, but it's much more in a lawyerly sense, right? We hire an attorney to, to be our advocate. Um, Another way to put this uh, is, is, as the, the New Testament puts it, um, words like comforter. Now, by this, we don't mean the blanket that you put over your bed or you know, a duvet, uh, but, but something much stronger than that. 
Actually, that's exactly it. Much stronger than that. Right? Come forward, come forward with 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 strength in the Latin. Um, so uh, you know, there's a kind of a joke in our churches. Like we have a church in the diocese called Church of the Holy Comforter, up in Cleburne. And and they'll make jokes about some people decided to go to the other church of the Holy Comforter today in their bed at home. <laughs> um, but but the 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 meaning is is of of strengthening, right? The strengthening of the Holy Spirit, um, and uh, that's that's one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is this uh, this gift of strengthening by by grace, um, guide. Counselor, I love the word counselor. Counselor is much more like a legal term as well. One who who uh, who um, offers counsel. Right? Um, in fact, this is one of the um, one of the uh, sevenfold gifts of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah um, is the gift of counsel. Um, advocate is another one, and helper. Uh, helper is a really good one. Um, well, and here's here's the point, right? Father Nicholas will make this point roundly in his sermon today. Uh, are we, as Christians, left without help in obedience to God? Not at all. Um, we, this is what Jesus says, I will not leave you comfortless. Right? Um, but, and, and this is where he speaks of the Holy Spirit um, being uh, given to us um, for, for the outpouring of God's grace. And this is something I think that Christians today really need to be reminded of, which is that um, we're not just sort of told, hey, go exercise your will and go be obedient and go do all the things you're supposed to and go live according to the, according to the commandments of God and all this stuff. And like, go do it because you'll probably be good at it. It's like, no, we should say, if you try to do that, you're going to fail. Um, no one, in fact, this is, this is Christian teaching 101, right? I mean, and look, I don't care who you are. Catholic, Protestant, whatever it is, like all churches teach that without the gifts of the Holy Spirit and without grace, you can't do anything right at all. Like this has been the historic teaching of the church since the early centuries, like right when the Holy Spirit, right, right at you know, the Council of Constantinople, this is one of the subjects they take up is, can people do anything good without grace? And what's the answer? No, right? And by the way, it's, it's October 31st, and a lot of people celebrate this as Reformation Day. Um, I say, I, I posted on Facebook, and Facebook kindly reminded me of this, that, you know, my, my attitude about Reformation Day is like, I guess it's Reformation Day, and we should, like, celebrate that or whatever. Like, it's, it's, you've got to be kind of apathetic about it, because, because it should have never had to happen, right? And I think we can say that. Um, and so many misunderstandings about what, what these doctrines actually are going on, both Protestant and Catholic. Um, one of the main issues, I think, with the Reformation is that in the zeal to sort of refound and re-see um, the doctrines of grace, um, there's a kind of failure there too, which is something like God just sort of accepts you as you are and doesn't really want to change you. Um, in fact, a, a very famous preacher who, um, who you know, was sort of, how, how to put it, you know, there was kind of there was a kind of controversy that bubbled up on Twitter this past week, but he basically said, you know, the the gospel is that God loves you exactly the way you are. I said, no, no, no. The gospel is that God loves you, gave His only Son for your life and for your salvation, and pours out His Holy Spirit upon you that you may live as He intends you to. That's that's the gospel, right? I think I think one of the one of the tragedies of the Reformation is that sanctification somehow got abstracted from the gospel. Um, <clears throat> for ancient Christians as well as in the New Testament, uh, sanctification by the whole, by the work of the Holy Spirit is part and parcel with the gospel. It's essential to the gospel. Um, we have gone so far astray in many places in America from this idea of transformation that's in the New Testament, transformation by the Holy Spirit, that we're just sort of like, come as you are, uh, I'm okay, you're okay, like it's, it's pop psychology, it's like whatever you want to, whatever you want to make of it. Um, and, and I think <clears throat> this is the, this is the wonderful word that we should take up is, you know, if I try to be sanctified by my own power, how's that going to go? Yeah, I got myself in this mess. I'm hard, I can hardly be expected to get myself out of it, right? Um, shoot, I barely got myself in the mess. 
Um, the, our human futility against sin is so massive um, that, that, that we will always fail and fail epically. Um, but, the, but thanks be to God uh, for the grace of the Holy Spirit to, to uh, be poured out upon us. Now, look, the reality is you might despair at certain points, right? You might say, man, I wish I'd stopped doing that. Okay, fine. Um, that happens, right? It's, man, I wish I'd stop, give up that stupid sin. Uh, but it, is, it should be illustrative of the need that we all have for grace, right? And by this, I don't mean God just sort of turning a blind eye. I mean God pouring power upon us by the Holy Spirit. Um, anyway, so that's my soapbox for the moment. Uh, but but this, is, this is where that teaching is so important that, um, well, that, that Peter gives on the, on the day of Pentecost, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for what? The forgiveness of sins, which we profess belief in later on in this, and you will receive what? The promised Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> this is to say that the, the church has always taught, and you know, I say this is right with Scripture, that when you are baptized, you absolutely receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, can you receive the Holy Spirit in other ways? Sure, God does whatever He wants. Okay, uh, but God also binds Himself to the work of sacraments and says, "If you do this, you will receive this." Like this is how it works, um, and and so um, this is this is one of the great things about about baptism. Um, as we talk about baptism down the road, which we will, because that's this is we're getting to the sacraments part of the catechism. Um, this is one of the things to keep in mind: is that the doctrine, the church's doctrine of baptism, derives directly from this understanding. <coughs> of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, this, is, this is essential to, to understand. Okay. You ready? What are the particular ministries of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit imparts life to every living thing in creation, reveals God's word to his people, and calls sinners to a new life of faith in the saving and life-giving work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit unites Christians to Jesus, indwelling them, convicting them of sin, giving them spiritual gifts, and bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. All right, we break this one down as well. So the church's teaching has been that the Holy Spirit imparts life to all of creation. Um, and this is, this is prevalent not only in, in, um, in, uh, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, this understanding that the Holy Spirit sort of moves over the waters in the beginning of creation. Okay. Um, it's this understanding of, hey, when God, when God creates Adam in Genesis chapter 2, how does he give life to Adam? <laughs> he breathes into his mouth, right? I like it a little more dramatic than the... Um, but it's, it's got to be this, this breathing, this divine breathing of life into Adam. Um, God imparts something of his breath, something of his spirit into Adam. And I love that little that little tack tacked on thing. And and he became a living being. Right, so he he's not only alive, but he is. Right. Uh, that's kind of a, a a gloss over that, but but the reality of it is that that that's to say not only that um, that human beings are, which you know, I'm sure Todd, you can say a lot more about this, and you know, this kind of idea of of of, of human. Being right as something more than just like, oh, I guess we exist, but but being itself, like that you and I have a being, is important. Um, so this is this is imparted by the Holy Spirit. Um, re- it reveals God's word to His people. So how is it that we receive the Holy Scriptures? Paul writes this. All Scripture is. God breathed. This is uh, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God breathed uh, and calls sinners to a new life of faith in the saving and life-giving work of Jesus. So how is it that people come to faith? The Holy Spirit moves upon them, right? How can can anyone believe if the Holy Spirit isn't given to them? 
Um, I think we, we often get this idea of like, oh, and you know, thanks to a lot of wonderful apologetic ministries that make, you know, that, that, that make, that try to go out and say, hey, we're doing all this apologetics work. It's so great. Like, look, there's a place for that. I think there is really a place for that. But we should not forget that it's not good and clever arguments that make Christians. What is it? It's the work and grace of the Holy Spirit. This is what uh, St. Augustine refers to when he calls this prevenient grace, is the grace of the Holy Spirit working upon someone to bring them to faith. Of course, I, you know, I, I never tire of saying this. I'm, I'm, reading the, I'm reading the confessions with my kids right now. It's great fun because, you know, I love Augustine. Augustine, prior to his conversion, is just a complete wreck. But the thing that he doesn't fail to recognize is that God is working on him through the whole story, just like laboring on his soul. And Augustine, Augustine actually, part of the Confessions is to see that God is working prior to him having any understanding of what's going on. And actually, I would I'd say this, you know, Augustine writes against the Pelagians greatly, right? He, he, just, he just rails against them. But probably his greatest apologetic against the Pelagians is his own life. He just says, look, I didn't figure it out. It wasn't like that. Um, God worked. Um, God drew me to repentance. He was faithful to draw me to himself. Um, so that's the reality of it. And I think, you know, uh, at the risk of, of saying something really super theologically, you know, stern, it's like, look, I really do believe in the power of evangelism, okay? I need to tell you this. Like, evangelism is worthwhile. But we cannot forget who's the prime actor in the work of evangelism. It's God. God working by His Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, so, so I think I think churches have a way of, of sort of saying like, "Hey, we're going to do all this work, and it's going to lead people to Jesus." Like, kinda, <laughs> maybe. Like, can God use His church to do these things? Sure. But but we cannot forget who the first mover is. Um, this is why, you know, uh, historically speaking, and this is to go on a further rant, but, you know, not just Pelagianism, but semi-Pelagianism is a problem. This idea that you can't really be a Christian, you can't really find God unless you're the first one to move. Like, you make the first move. You ask, seek, knock. They use biblical language for this. Right, but but here's here's the wonderful image in the back of the church as to as to who knocks on what door. Like, look, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the wonderful Vermeer image, right? It's it's um it's and how does the door how does the door unlatch? There's no door handle that can be turned. It's from the inside. But who stands at the door? Jesus. Um, and this is just to say that the, the first one to make a foray into human life is always the first one to ever make the approach. Is always, always, uh, always God Himself. All right. The Holy Spirit unites Christians to Jesus, indwelling them, convincing, convicting them of sins, giving them spiritual gifts, and bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. Um, one of the things that we uh, have really forgotten is how it is that Christians are unified really forgotten this. Is it, is it because we all believe the same thing? Look, look, I think believing similarly builds Christian unity, but it's not the main thing. The Holy Spirit draws Christians together in communion. Um, and our relationship, look, this is the really wild thing. You know, it's like, it's, it's not like I have a faith, Taylor, you have a faith, and therefore we're the church. It doesn't work that way. It's that we are both in Christ by His Holy Spirit, and therefore we each have a unity through the Holy Spirit in Christ. Okay? It's not we got together and decided we're a church. Okay? Like, and this is where things go wrong is because all of it's sort of uh, negotiated on our sort of rational terms. And look, the reality of it is that's not how it works. Um, uh, Christians are bound together, and the reason that they wind up believing the same thing is because they're made one. They're made a unity. We are made a unity. Um, 
And and this is really you know part of the part of the really scandalous thing is that we think like oh it's our agreement that's that is the basis of our unity. It's like no no our unity is the basis of our agreement. Right, that's the reality. Okay. Okay, let's move forward. Uh, indwelling them, this is wonderful. You know, Paul teaches. Do you not know that your bodies are are temples of the Holy Spirit? I'm paraphrasing, but but. What does that mean? What's a temple? Yeah, it's a dwelling place. In the ancient world, a temple was where the uh, hypostases of a god lived. You know what? Hypostasis is person in Greek. We, we changed it to person. We changed its meaning, but there it is, right? Uh, it's where the god lives. Okay, so what's, what's Paul saying here? Yeah, that, that God's person, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and this, is, this is an even more, more miraculous thing because as we meet, when we meet another Christian, we're not just meeting another human being, we're meeting a temple of the Holy Spirit who's meeting a temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, it is rather convicting, yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, one of the greatest sermons ever preached is C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory. For that reason, right? It's it's just this reminder that there is no ordinary human being. They, they just don't exist. Like, even if a person is not a temple of the Holy Spirit, pagan type, you know, whatever it might be, they're still the mo- most glorious thing you could possibly behold because their body is made to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Like, you know, like that's Christian teaching on human life and its value. Um, so it's not just sort of like, oh, human beings can be productive and do nice things and, you know, be good people and all that. It's like, no, no, not even close. Like, the Christian, Christian teaching on human being itself is that human beings are created in the image of God. And, and let, me, let me just make it abundantly clear, right? Um, human beings cannot know who they are in reference to creation because we're so darn different from creation. Would you not agree? I, I can't know myself by knowing a monkey. Monkeys are different from me, right? Like I, can't, I can't know myself by swimming with dolphins, as nice as that might be. I, I can't know myself in relation to anything in creation, rocks, mountains, trees, whatever it might be, because all I can really know is how different I am from those things. How do I really know who I am? In God. If I'm made in the image of God, it means that there's no image like me in creation, aside from me and you. That's it. Um, But the only thing I can know from you is what I'm like, not who I am. Um, And so this is is a really big deal. Um, And how do we know this as Christians? Oh, by being indwelt. (laughs) That's that's the reality of it. And this is why Paul calls the gift of the Holy Spirit a, 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 well... A down payment on our inheritance. Like, wouldn't it be great if Grandma would give you a down payment on your inheritance? Like, you know, like it'd be better to have an inheritance at twenty-five than forty-five. You know, uh, but that's just a thought. Uh, you know, uh, but that's the reality of it. Is that that's how Paul speaks of the gift of the Holy Spirit? Um, is is a a uh, kind of like yeah a collateral gift in advance of the final gifts. Um, and this is, this is the purpose of spiritual gifts, actually. They show forth um, uh, the people of God to be the people of God. Um, now, th- do a lot of good, right? For sure. For sure. Um, this, is, this is why spiritual gifts are given. They're given for the upbuilding of society and for the upbuilding of the church. Um, Paul understands this, right? Um, he writes to the Corinthians that if, if, you, if you desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit, what should you do? It's really clear about this. This is a wonderful, wonderful text. It says, strive to build up the church. If you really want to get gifts of the Holy Spirit, strive to build up the church. Why? Because that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for. So if you want to build up the church, what do you do? You pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? It's this kind of circular understanding. That's what you do. Um, 
but it's it's this it's this uh, this understanding that that the Holy Spirit builds up the church, okay, um, and and the gifts are given for that reason. Um, well, th- again, Paul, First Corinthians, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what, the common good, and the common good is as I think Oliver Donovan reminded us a couple years ago in a visit to Baylor, he just said the common good is both the good of the church and the good of society. And those two are not abstracted one from the other. So this is another important thing. It's like, I know I'm ranting today, but I'm, I'm a little tired, and so that's what I do when I'm tired. Um, it's not as though the church has sort of like really good things it can do apart from being herself, right? It's not as though the church can just sort of like, why can't the church just sort of like leave doctrine behind and just do good things and help people? Do you understand how, how radically crazy that, that assumption is? It really is nuts. It's like, how can I be any good to anybody if I'm not myself? That's the question. Um, and so I think a lot of people are saying, you know, hey, can we just, can't we all just get along? Like, can we just leave behind all these kinds of controversies and all these things and like just, and just, and just help people and get together and like do good things? It's like, there's a content to this, right? Um, and, and I think this is really key. It's, it's why, do we, why are we given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit? For the good of the church and for the good of society. All right. And bearing spiritual fruit in their lives. Uh, as, of course, Paul writes to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there's what? No law, <laughs> uh, which is which is a wonderful, wonderful turn of rhetoric in Paul. It's just like he might as well be saying, you know, it's not illegal. Yeah, according to anybody's standards. Um, that's that's quite a fun thing, right? When you remind people, like, hey, you know, there's there's certain things that haven't been outlawed yet. And you know what they are, <laughs> and that's that's great. All right. How does the Holy Spirit strengthen your life, you for life in Christ? The Holy Spirit bears witness that I am a child of God, stirs my heart continually to worship and to pray, and inspires me to holiness and good works in Christ. Um, this wonderful um, um, teaching of Paul as well, that, that the Holy Spirit prays within us, Abba, Father, um, um, testifying that what? That we're children of God. Um, you know, and, and even when we even when we don't feel that, even when we don't act like it, what's still the reality? That we're children of God. Um, I, I like all parents will occasionally have this this feeling of like, how are these my children? Right? They're acting so miserably. And then I remember, oh, I used to do that crap too, right? I, mean, I used to be just like that. That's what's so unsettling about my kids. You know, is that they're just like me when I was that age. Oh. <laughs> it's like looking in a mirror sometimes. Um, but, 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 sometimes all they can just say in, in every bit of snark and truth is, Dad! Right? That's all they can say. Dad! Because what are they saying? I know you can't believe I'm your child, but I'm going to tell you who I am right now. Right? In all honesty. And, and I would just say that for a Christian, even when we can't even acknowledge God as our Father, the Holy Spirit testifies that we're children of God. Um, and, and that matters deeply. Um, so keep that one in your, in your mind. Uh, stirs my heart continually to worship and to pray. Um, we, we, we should always be mindful of the fact that when we, especially when you come into church, do you get distracted during church services? Okay. Can my hand go higher? <laughs> I get very distracted. I'm like, oh gosh, I got a lot to do today, and I start thinking about the dimensions for cabinets I want to build, and all kinds of other things. And my mind just goes like off on tangents. And you know, I have ADHD, so that's pretty much how it works all the time. But but what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us who have attention deficit disorder and and everyone who just can't really pay attention to God? It's just this kind of constant pounding, right? Like, hey, hey. Hey, 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 over here, over here, over here, over here. It's like that. 
um, and inspires me to holiness and good works in Christ. Um, actually, a little bit more about that. You know, Teresa of Avila used to say that if you get distracted in prayer, you should think of the distractions like little children barging in on adult conversation. What do you do? You say, I hear you, right? Put your hand on my knee, and when I'm done with this adult conversation, I'll talk to you. Okay? And, and that's a wonderful thing because think about that with regard to the Holy Spirit and the work of prayer, right? Is, is you're, you're literally in this deep um, conversation with God that may not even have words. Um, that is the life of prayer, actually. The life of prayer is actually uh, what, what, again, Teresa of Avila, a wonderful source on prayer, says is loving intercourse with God. And she means it in every sense. It's supposed to be a racy comment, right? Because it is. Um, is is this this deep, uh, uh, loving intimacy with God? Um, all right. And inspires. I love and inspires. Of course, that's what the, the Holy Spirit is an inspiring, inspiring person. Uh, inspires holiness and good works in Christ. Um, so, so the way that, that you can know that the Holy Spirit is leading you is you say, well, well you know, is it, is it gonna, what's it going to lead to? And if it's going to lead to me being less holy, then probably not God. Okay, probably not the Holy Spirit. If it's going to lead me to do evil things, can it be of God? No. Even along the way, actually, this is the thing. I mean, uh, for the Christian, the, the ends can never justify the means, ever. There's no such thing. Um, it's nonsense. Um, the Holy Spirit leads us in the paths of righteousness um, and, uh, and establishes in them. And so that's a really big, a really big thing. Is you can't just sort of say, well, well, but my intentions were good. It's like, I'm just a soul who's in. Forget it. <laughs> um, but there you go. The Holy Spirit leads us in, in paths of holiness and good works. Okay, what time is it? Okay, good. We got like another 20 minutes. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? The Scriptures teach that by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven my sins, and I receive the Holy Spirit, who gives me new birth in Christ and frees me from the power of sin. Um, I want to be abundantly clear with you right now, uh, because I know the temptation is always like, but what about babies? It's like... We'll deal with them later. Uh, but, but for right now, uh, I, I love this. You know, we, should, we should really actually see this more clearly than we do, uh, which is that um, when we think about baptism, either biblically or just in terms of doctrine, we should, our minds should go to an adult being baptized, an adult who comes to faith, who comes to believe, and is baptized. Full stop. That should be how we think about it. Our controlling theological metaphors for how we think about baptism should be adult baptism. Everything else would be clearer if we just thought like that. Okay? Um, and, and I say that as an Anglican who's committed to the position of infant baptism. I really do believe it. And I believe it's good. But I, I will tell you that we really need to think about an adult who comes to faith and is baptized when we think about baptism. So, And by the way, this catechism is addressed to Adults coming to faith for the first time who've never been baptized. That's, that's, that's the recipient of this catechism, not sort of uh, evangelicals on the Canterbury Trail, as lovely as you are, uh, and, and not the rest. But, but here it is. Um, it's this, um, the Scriptures teach that by repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, I am forgiven my sins and I receive the Holy Spirit who gives me new birth in Christ and frees me from the power of sin. All right. I'm just going to tell you, there is no room for baptizing people who do not profess faith in Jesus Christ. None. 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 There's not even room for baptizing the infants of people who don't profess faith in Jesus Christ. There's not room for that at all. Okay, so I want you to hear that. That's the reality. Um, why? Because it's a complete and utter contradiction. I just want to be clear about that. So to, to repent and be baptized means that you want to receive the Holy Spirit. This is, what, this is exactly what Peter's talking about uh, in his response to those, uh, 
those who hear him on the day of Pentecost. And what do, what do we hear of, the, of them, those people who hear him? I love, I love what they say. It says they were, they, were, they were sliced open to the heart. They were gutted, is, a way to, is, how, I, is how I would put it. Um, actually, Hans Borsma mentioned that. There's this kind of like a cutting of the word into the, uh, into, into the very interior part of a human being that goes on here. Um, yeah, it just gets right to your guts. Um, and 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 so they were cut to the heart, right? And then what, what what do they say? They say, "Men of Israel, what are we gonna do?" And Peter's ready with answers, like repent and be baptized, every one of you. Um, so repentance and baptism are two sides of the same coin. Um, this is why, actually, and you'll note this when you come on Sun, you know, on Sunday at the at the uh, at the ten forty five, we're gonna have baptisms, and and this is what we ask people to do. Um, in liturgical space like this, it doesn't matter, and in Waco it really doesn't matter because Waco is really crazy about cardinal directions. Um, it doesn't matter what's northwest, southeast. Like, that's west, that's east, that's north, that's south. Cool? Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> like, think about the church as like, uh, it, it's completely isolated from the realities that surround it, right? That's east, or that's east, that's west, that's north, that's south. Okay, um, and uh, and you know, ancient Christians were were so oriented towards this ah, that they that they would face their churches east all the time, unless they absolutely couldn't. And Saint Peter's in Rome is actually an example of this. They they couldn't build it with the altar over the the catacombs, so they had to build it f- facing west instead of east. Um, but normally, churches were built facing east. Um, so what you do in baptism is. Uh, you, you would turn towards the doors and you would renounce Satan um, and all his works. You would renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? And then the priest would have you turn around and face east towards Christ, toward the risen Christ. Like That's literally why that image in the altar is, is what it is. You see this kind of conflation, right, of Christ who's crucified in front of a rising sun, which is shaped oddly like an Easter egg, which is not an Easter egg. It's not, a, it's not an Easter egg at all. It's actually, it's recalling this uh, Christian imagery of mandorla, which is a kind of opening between heaven and earth. Okay? And what's he doing with his hand? He's pointing to this empty tomb, right? And look, I'll just I'll let you... I, I composed this image with Sean Oswald's help, an artist, and, and he painted it, but, but we sat for hours and just talked about what this image should be. He's pointing to this empty tomb, which, do you see the inside of the tomb, what, it, what, is, what color it's painted? It's purple. It's the color of Lent. So he's literally pointing to this Lenten tomb out of which he's risen. That's pretty wild, isn't it? It's like he's He's pointing you to something that actually looks mysteriously like a baptismal font, too, by the way, right? Because in Christian theology, baptismal fonts and tombs are conflated, always, for good reason, right? It's like, what is, what is a baptismal font but a tomb into which you die and rise again? Like, <laughs> that's what it is. Um, not only that, but he's pointing down, and you'll note that, that in the Eucharist, when, when the Eucharist is celebrated, we lift up the sacrament. And he's pointing again. Um, all that imagery is meant to show you that, that the life of the Christian is shown forth in these ways. There's, there's a great connection between baptism, the Eucharist, the life of the church, the resurrection and death of Jesus, right? The gift of the Holy Spirit. All this kind of eastward thinking, right? It's all looking east. And it's not because cardinal directions matter, like in, in the, they do matter, but they don't matter, like in that sense. It, it's that, it's that the church has an orientation. <laughs> Um, which is why it just drives me crazy when Christians talk about orientation. Uh, because, because our orientation as Christians is to whom? Always. Christ. Always. Um, that, that's what the word means, right? It's, it means we face east, right? That's what it means, literally. And it comes from that understanding, directly. 
All right. Okay, but I'm ranting again. All right. I'm forgiven my sins. So Peter clearly teaches this on, on the day of Pentecost, that you'll be forgiven of sins, um, and receive the Holy Spirit, who gives me new birth in Christ and frees me from the power of sin. So all of this is also tied up in the in theology of the New Testament. It's, it's presented right there. It's, um, you know, Paul writing in, writing to the Romans in, in Romans 6, do you not know that as many of you who were baptized into Christ were baptized also into his death? Um, in Galatians, as many of you who were baptized into Christ have what? Put on Christ. Okay. Um, what are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Oh, no, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Let's do the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is the very character of Jesus developing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Um, it's, a, it's a really good really good way to put it. The very character of Jesus developing in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the things that we really have to catch is that Jesus grew up by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, yes. He grew up in the power of the Spirit. Um, he's, you know, we see he's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, so what is the Holy Spirit doing in Jesus? This is kind of a scandalous thought, but just bear with, bear with it for a second. Right? Jesus grew up. He learned things. A character was formed in him. It wasn't all just kind of like, you know, automatic. You have to be really careful about this. I mean, theologians are careful about this or should be careful about this. It's like, look, it's not just like Jesus is born and because he's God, you know, every lack of character is impossible. Like, I think that's true. But you have to remember, Jesus is not just God. He's God and man. So a character is formed in him. Character is formed in God, you can even say. Like, that's really an important way to put it. Um, God the Son. And, and the Holy Spirit forms him in this life. So that's what's going on here, right? The, the word of the Holy Spirit is to conform us to the image of Christ. There it is. Um, what, does it mean to be, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means you're made to be like Jesus. It's very simple. Um, but, but I say all of this because, uh, because often... People use the fruit of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit as a, as a means of differentiation. Like, well, we're spirit-filled Christians unlike those other people across the street. Like, you know, we have gifts of the Holy Spirit that you don't have. Well, look, this is a story as old as, as old as Scripture, right? It's, you know, people mocking one another for not having the same gifts as they do. Um, and this is why Paul, this is one of the big reasons Paul writes First letter to the Corinthians. It's this exact thing. It's like, cut it out. Why are you giving the gift of the Holy Spirit? Not so that you can be better than everybody else, but what? Yeah, for for them, for them, for the building up of the church, for the for the common good. Um, so you know, I I think, well, I can do this. I don't want to come across as critical of charismatics, but I will for just a second say something critical of charismatics, which is that there's a tendency among charismatic Christians to um, to denigrate the normal Christian life and just sort of say, that's not enough, you got to be this, you got to do this, you got to have these gifts, you got to do this. It's like, maybe. Like, if God wills it, sure. But but it's, it's, it is to say that there's, that there's, there's this kind of there's kind of normal Christianity, and then there's us, and, and and isn't it great that we're you know here and not there? Um, just consider that for a moment. But but look how normal the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, or the fruit of the Holy Spirit are here first. Just how just how like non uh, ecstatic these things are: love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Nothing astounding, nothing too difficult, right? Well, it is difficult, but, but you see, it's nothing that's like, oh, you have to speak in tongues. None of that is there, OK? 
Okay, so having laid that foundation, I want to move on to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Which, which are in the catechism, thanks be to God, because of the, because of the, the, the deep urging of charismatic Anglicans, right? He said, oh, we must not forget the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it's like, right on. Like, <laughs> um, so let's ask that. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Among the many gifts in the, of the Holy Spirit named in the New Testament are faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, other languages, tongues, the interpretation of other languages, and words of wisdom and knowledge. The Spirit distributes gifts to individuals as he wills for the sake of the body of Christ. Other gifts in the New Testament include administration, service, encouragement, evangelism, teaching, giving, leadership, and mercy. Jesus promises that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Okay, so wonderful list of things. I think one of the things that I love about this list is that they are also shockingly normal as well and not kind of like just all kind of ecstatic speaking in tongues and, and going about healing people. Um, it's things like, you know, hey, we're entering into our, our stewardship season. You'll note that one of the things that happens at Christ Church that I just love is we don't have a stewardship campaign every single year. Like, you're not going to hear five sermons on stewardship from me. Uh, you know, we could do that, but we never have. Why? Because we just say, hey, look, this is like normal. This isn't abnormal. This is normal. Like, giving is normal. Um, giving is a work of giving is guided by the Holy Spirit. And we just sort of pray that God will lead you to give, right? Um, and will lead you in that way of, of, um, of maturity. All right, but let's go back. Among the many gifts of the Holy Spirit named in the New Testament are faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, other languages, the interpretation of other languages, and words of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, so it kind of is out with kind of what we would call the charismatic gifts of the Spirit first. Um, and I think this is quite true. I mean, I, I, would, I would say, um, well, let me just tell you a story. Uh, I, I, for years, was the recipient of all of the feedback emails on the catechism, and I got a particularly lovely little nasty gram from someone who was like, this seems to exclude um, cessationism as a reasonable theology, right? So cessationism is this idea that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have just stopped happening since the New Testament period. And I responded rather snarkily, and I repent of this, but I was like, yep, pretty much. <laughs> That's the reality. Um, because, because, look, I believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still present in the church, still working. Um, I, and I believe that not only because I believe what Scripture says about it, but because I've seen it with my own dang eyes. Like, I have seen miracles. Um, I'll just tell you, multiplication of food items in front of my eyes. I was in Haiti one time as a 17-year-old kid, and we were passing out um, food stores to children. And... These missionaries, these wild Pentecostal missionaries, they point over to this, like, you know, uh, pallet with a bunch of bags of wheat in it. And I've got like two or three bags. And we were going to feed 125 kids that day. After I was done distributing for 30 kids, I was down to my last bag. And I was like, oh, oh no, there's going to be rioting. <laughs> this is going to be bad, like really bad. Because, you know, they expect this. This is like, they're going to be hungry if they don't get this. And I just started sitting there praying as I was doling out scoops. I'm telling you, the bag, the bottom never dropped out of that bag. Never. I kept scooping. Scoop after scoop after scoop. Still there. I can't explain that. That's a miracle. Um. I've seen, I had a friend, uh, John, when I was in junior high, and John was born with one leg longer than the other. Couldn't run, could barely walk. I mean, it was miserable. And he, we were at, we were at our, our diocesan camp one summer, and he was, in my, he was like my bunkmate. And he was miserable because we were running all over the place and he was just like in pain the whole time and he was crying at the end of the week. This poor kid, you know. Well, this priest sees this poor kid like in total pain and he's talking to his mama. He's like, what's, what's, and he was just there for the day. He hadn't been there for the week. I'm like, what's, what's going on? He's just in a lot of pain. They were running around all the time and, and you know, his, his legs being different lengths kind of makes it difficult. And, and he's like, <laughs> 
well, let's do something about that. <laughs> he got in the back of their 84 Lincoln Town car, this boat of a car. I remember this. Like, remember this like it was yesterday. He laid hands on that kid's leg, and his leg grew in their sight. And within 10 minutes, there was John running around playing football with us. Crazy. Completely crazy. I remember several years ago, we were, at, we were in Baltimore, of all places, for a Society of the Holy Cross gathering, and Bishop Reed, as, a, as the dean of the cathedral, was in complete and utter pain. He had knee pain that was just awful and debilitating. Awful. And he couldn't walk anywhere, and we were having to walk a lot of places, and it was just really miserable. And my friend, Father Brian Laffler, who's, who's just got these gifts working in him, I mean, he, he can heal, he's, he's healed people over and over and over again. Um, he just kind of pulled, pulled Bishop Reed aside and said, I'm going to pray for you that your knee stops hurting. And all of a sudden, we're looking around like, where's, where's Ryan? Where'd he go? <laughs> Somebody's like, Father Laffler healed him. <laughs> He's down at the hotel basketball court playing pickup basketball with a bunch of people from the neighborhood. Like, what is going on? And he was, there he was, running around playing basketball. Um, so I want you to hear this, like, miracles of healing happen. These, all these things happen. Um, uh, gifts, gifts of prophecy, discernment of spirits. All this stuff happens in the church all the time. Um, uh, I, I've often had the experience of praying for somebody who's just on a, just on a dumb prayer list. Like, it's just a list of names. And I'll be sitting there like, I feel really led to pray for this guy because I just, there's a lot of pain in his life. Come find out, the guy had been a, he had been a World War II vet, came home from Europe, completely lost his faith, was completely angry about what he saw, was traumatized, and was going on this weekend retreat. No idea why, but that was the story. And I was told that story immediately upon meeting the guy. Um, so this happens a lot. Like prophecy and all these gifts happen. They do. Um, I have, I'll tell you this, in, in the life of the ACNA, I've seen, I've seen people uh, exercise prophetic gifts of the Holy Spirit that have outstripped my imagination in every sense of the word. Like, wild, wild stuff. Um, so this happens. Okay. Shall we move on to this other part? The, the Spirit distributes gifts to individuals as He wills for the sake of the body of Christ. I will just say this too. Um, if, if, if people say, hey, like, we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit and uh, it's for the sake of dividing up the church, leading to division. It's like, you need to read 1 Corinthians again and again and again because that's not what the Holy Spirit does. Um, and, and many people today use the pretense of like, we're just following the Holy Spirit to sort of sanctify the zeitgeist, not the Holy Spirit. That's all they're attempting to do is say, we want to make this, we want to make this change and we're just going to say the Holy Spirit led us to do it. Um, nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. Uh, okay. Well, I mean, look. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom from what? Bondage. Bondage to sin. We shouldn't expect that it will lead to more sin. Um, I love that these, these other gifts are included as well, including administration. Right? You, may, you may know me and know that I have a big old goose egg when it comes to gifts of administration. I am terrible at it. I can barely answer my own email. So like, if you write me an email, expect a response like a couple weeks later when I, overridden with guilt, just sort of like open my email and like try to respond. Um, really bad way to do it. Like, If you want to talk to me about something, send an email to Stevie, who will put a meeting with you on my calendar I will wake up that morning and say, what do I have going on today? Oh, I'm meeting with so-and-so. That'll be fun. And I'll go and have lunch with you or have coffee with you and we'll talk and it'll be great. Like, but administration is not my deal, right? But thanks be to God that he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon Stevie Nichols for the sake of ministry, right? Because she's dang good at it. Um, so wonderful, right? Uh, gifts of service. 
Um, by the way, the word that, that is often translated ministry in the New Testament is actually the, the Greek word diakonia, which means service. So when we think about ministry, we should think about service. Um, encouragement. I mean, do you need encouragement? I need encouragement. My wife is my encouragement. She's the one who sits there. Is like, I know it's hard. <laughs> she doesn't say suck it up. She's like, but I love you. We're gonna get you. You get through this. Um, evangelism. Evangelism. Look, evangelism is not the sort of thing like he's really good at evangelism. No, 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 no. It's it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Before it's anything. Um, teaching, giving, leadership, and mercy. Um, all these things are gifts. And I think just, you know, again, I don't want to, I don't want to come across as critical today. I really don't. But, but the reality of it is that a lot of people have just sort of said, this is what we're good at. Deal with it. Like, they're not really taking into account that if you're good at it, you're good at it because God gave you the gift. And maybe didn't give it to others. And that's not to say they're less than or, or worse off. It's just to say that they don't have that gift. That's okay. Thanks be to God, somebody has it. Right? Like, that's the reality. Um, I think there's a lot of looking down noses today, and that, and a lot of it has to do, and it's just like the ancient church. Look, it's just like, it's just like the first, it's just like Corinthians, right? Just like it. All right. Why does the Holy Spirit Oh, yes, finally, Jesus promises that the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. So that's a, good, that's a good promise, isn't it? It's like, I'm really struggling against this sin. What's a good prayer to pray? Hmm. Like, <laughs> think about it. <laughs> Look, it's always, it should always be, Lord, please grant me more of your Holy Spirit. More. I want more. I need more. Um, many of you will be uh, discerning whether or not you want to be confirmed in the spring. Uh, look, confirmation is not becoming an Anglican. It's not even becoming a member of our church. That's not how it works. Confirmation is asking the bishop to pray for you for the increase of the Holy Spirit. That's what it is through laying on of hands. So you kneel before the bishop. He puts his hands on your head. He prays for the increase of the Holy Spirit. That's what that's what confirmation is. Okay, I, I know that some people think that confirmation is just sort of always in interminable search for a theology to support it, um, there's the theology, right? It's, it's simple. It's asking for the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so you might say, I want that. I hope you say, I want that. <laughs> well, there's a way. Um, and I believe Father Jonathan mentioned that, mentioned that last week in, in his sermon. Like, the writer of the letter to Hebrews believes that teachings on the laying on of hands, and I think this applies not only to confirmation but to ordination as well, are basic Christian teachings. They're not advanced. They're basic. It's pure spiritual milk to talk about the laying on of hands. Like, that's wonderful, isn't it? Because it is. It really is. Um, okay. Are we ready for this last one? And then we'll wrap. Oh, yeah, we have to Let's make Judy mad. Uh, all right. Why does the Holy Spirit give such gifts? The Holy Spirit equips and empowers believers with gifts for service and the worship of Jesus Christ, for the building up of his church, and for witness and mission to the world. Okay, as if we hadn't said it enough, the Holy Spirit equips. Um, well, look, this is, this is Ephesians 4, right? Why does... Let me just give you a brief. Actually, you know what? Let's just read it. Ephesians four. This is like where the this is where the diocesan vision comes from. It's where the vision for Christ Church comes from. Um, I mean, coming here to plant Christ Church, I was like, well, "What's the vision?" I was like, "The vision is what we've been given by the bishop," and the vision is Ephesians four. Like, <laughs> it's very simple. Um, and I love Ephesians four. It's like it's always front and center, always, um, because it just hits on every cylinder. Okay. Right before, right after Galatians. Okay. Give you the rundown of Ephesians 4. Okay. Paul has spent the first three chapters talking about how being in Christ means that all the riches of God are yours and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's just like, whew, you want to know where you are, folks? You're in heaven. Congratulations. I know it doesn't look like it, but that's where you are. You're with Christ at the right hand of the Father. Okay. So he's, he's relating all of this teaching to the ascension, actually. 
It's like Christ has ascended. Where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. Where are you? You're at the right hand of the Father. You're enthroned in splendor with Jesus. Okay, that's first three chapters of Ephesians. And then he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What's the calling? Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's the calling. Okay. Uh, with all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. He's just like, he's nailing it. It's like, look, there's one Lord. Where is he? At the right hand of the Father, one baptism, one faith. I mean, it's all there. Okay. You were baptized into what? Jesus into that one faith. Like, there's always in the church's teaching, always been a unity between the faith, baptism, Jesus himself. Okay? All right. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, right? Above all, see? And through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on this tear about the ascension. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So in Scripture, what happens? Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and what does he do from there? Sends out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent from the ascended Christ. Okay. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. So this is either in his incarnation, right? Some will say it, or in his descent among the dead, but I think it's, it's about the incarnation. It's about, he, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. It's probably about the whole thing. He who descended is he who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what do we all need to be? Equipped, right? <laughs> Equipped. Like given the equipment, right? Can you imagine sending soldiers into battle without equipment? Bad decision, right? Don't do that. That's what catechesis is about. It's like, hey, look. You know, most Christians are like going up against armored tanks with pea shooters, right? Like, done with that. Can't do that anymore. You got to get taught. You got to get catechized. That's how it is. Okay. So equipped. How's that happen? Through the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So why do we do catechesis? To build up the body of Christ, right? And what do you, what do you get if you build up the body of Christ? According to Paul. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? So you seek to build up the church? What do you get? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, okay? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So he draws you right back to Jesus' ascended. You see what's going on here? It's like this, this work of ministry is not just sort of like doing nice things. It's not what it's about. Um, it's about building up the body of Christ through these works of service, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through these gifts that God gives in ministry. Okay? So I just want to kind of like, that's my final rant for the day. Thank you all for listening to me. <laughs> it's just to say, like, you cannot go too far in committing yourself to being equipped for the work of ministry. Right? I think moderation is a lovely thing, except here. <laughs> like, I really do. I think, I think pursuing... You should be moderate in all things except pursuing mature manhood to the full measure of the stature of Christ. That you should go crazy about. That you should be like a chihuahua with a T-bone steak. Like, go nuts. That is so key. Um, and you can't overdo it. You really can't. Um, like, moderation in literally everything else except that. All right. Thanks all.